Hello, friends, and welcome to the season one finale of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. To celebrate this momentous occasion, this is our Ask Us Anything episode. My name's Stephanie Brimhall. I'm the symphony's education manager. I'm Mike Gordon, the principal flute. And I'm Jason Sieber, associate conductor. So, you know, we try to cover the gamut here at Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. We've had a great first season uh, sharing our stories from behind the scenes here at the Kansas City Symphony, trying to give our listeners a glimpse into all the magic, presenting enthralling interviews with an array <laughs> of extraordinary guests. And let's face it, this is must hear material every week. Am I right, guys? Am I right? I, I mean, I never miss a week. <laughs> yeah. I try not to either. It's so good. But as thorough as we are, we uh, I'm sure there's a few things you might be wondering about, which we haven't covered yet. So I'm here to tell you that the wait is over. As Stephanie said, this is our Ask Us Anything episode. So today we're going to answer your compelling questions. Well, our faithful listeners have been submitting questions the past month, and we have selected some of the very best, the most exquisite, the choicest, most insightful questions uh, to answer for you on the air today or on the internet more accurately. So uh, let's dive in with a hardball right away. And this comes from Dan. Dan asked a very uh, insightful question. He said, since contemporary instruments are increasingly flexible in regards to dynamics, nuance, tone, etc., does that imply that historical and more, quote, authentic performances are to be discarded? Imagine performing a Chopin etude with terraced dynamics or a Baroque sonata with romantic nuance, rubato, and dynamic variation. How does that all work? Now, I have a little inside information on this Dan character, and uh, <laughs> I have to say he's He's uh, not only astute, you may have gathered that he is, in fact, a professional musician, and he was uh, my first flute teacher from ah. when I was a kid. So, uh, so I learned many things from Dan, and if I answer this question incorrectly, I'm going to hear about it. But maybe first we should just unpack a few of these uh, terms that Dan threw in there. So, so he was talking of course, about uh, about contemporary instruments versus Baroque instruments. And the Baroque mm -hmm. period is uh, what we consider to be roughly the you know, 1700s, 1600, late 1600s. Uh, so we're talking about really old music, and the instruments were quite different then, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. The, the string instruments were uh, a little smaller. Um, they used gut strings instead of today's uh, metal or synthetic strings. Um, so they had a softer, warmer tone. The bow was different. Of course, trumpets didn't have valves yet. So many differences uh, between instruments of the late Baroque and early classical period to today. Well, and also there are instruments that didn't even exist during the oh, yeah. during the Baroque period too. So, and you can actually hear these instruments today. There are a lot of people who play. Uh, both modern and Baroque instruments. There are some people who even play exclusively Baroque instruments. There are a lot of wonderful ensembles that play exclusively uh, Baroque instruments. And they're really, really fascinating sound. And to hear music from that time on what we call the period instruments is is really a whole thing unto itself. But let, So let's get into Dan's question now. What do you guys think? How do you listen differently, say, to a Bach 
a sonata or an unaccompanied work for a string instrument or a wind instrument. Well, what's really interesting to me is, you know, Bach wrote most of his keyboard works for either the organ or the harpsichord. And first of all, many people will play uh, a Bach harpsichord work on the modern day piano. So right away, you're completely changing the concept of it and the sound of it. Um, But I, I don't think that just because we have all these great modern instruments, that we do need to to use them all the time or that we that we need to throw out the old traditions of performance and as you said Mike I think it's always fascinating to hear a baroque orchestra playing on period instruments mm-hmm. that being said I think that you know Bach because the music is so great it works on modern day instruments as well of course and I do think it would be interesting to hear a Chopin etude with terrace dynamics, which is a term from the Baroque period where you didn't really have crescendos or diminuendos sometimes, but levels of dynamics where you'd suddenly be a little louder than suddenly be a little louder again. Or to hear, you know, uh, a Johann Sebastian Bach uh, violin partita with romantic nuance, and actually some performers do that anyway. Um, Because if you're going to play on a modern instrument, I feel like you should make that instrument sound its best, even if it's historically incorrect sometimes, so to say. I'm doing air quotes, and of course you can't see that. But <laughs> I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. What do you think, Stephanie? Well, I I mean, I think that, and I think I've said this in a, in a past episode, but I feel like it's there really is no wrong way to listen to music or to perform music. I think is, um, you know, there are certainly... Um, traditional ways and there are contemporary ways but you know I don't think there's anything wrong in experimenting and you know uh, hearing different sounds and following different concepts you know as but I do think it's important to kind of understand where you're coming from and where the music is coming from and so uh, you know educating ourselves that way I think is important um, but I think it's always interesting to hear new things and new presentations and representations. I think what you just said is exactly the key. I mean, you have to understand before you really, before you can really give a refined uh, performance of this music, you have to really understand what it would have sounded like, you know, to the to the composer in in his or her time. And you can play it differently now, and you will. Even my flute is so very different from a Baroque flute. Uh, I don't know how to play a Baroque flute. I couldn't just pick one up and, and do it. It's a totally different instrument. Um, so when I play Bach, for instance, it doesn't sound like what Bach heard, but I know what a Baroque flute sounds like, and I know what what he heard, and I I use that to guide you know my own interpretation on a modern instrument. But it doesn't have to sound exactly the way it did to Bach, necessarily. So, how is a Baroque flute different from a, a modern flute today? Yeah, so the, the modern flute uh, really developed around the mid-19th century. Didn't happen necessarily overnight, but one person is sort of credited with inventing it, Theobald Bohm, uh, who, I don't think he made the first metal flute necessarily, but he laid out the mechanism uh, of all the keywork, uh, figured out the size and placement of the holes uh, so that it could play uh, chromatically in all keys, fluidly over a relatively large range. So the Baroque flute, uh, in contrast, was uh, an instrument with very few keys, mostly just small holes like what you see today on a a clarinet or an oboe. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, the 
the bore of the instrument was was different. If you want to get really into the weeds about this, a modern flute has a conical board uh, head joint and a cylindrical board body, which just means that the top part of the flute is a little bit narrower at the top than at the end, and then the rest of the flute is all the same diameter throughout. And the Baroque flute was different. It was... Well, now I'm going to have to check my facts. It was cylindrical. <laughs> I think it was cylindrical through the whole bore. I think. Careful. All right. Okay. We're going to have to go to the Wikipedia for this one. We're going to fact check you. I know it was different. The, the conical board head joint uh, helped facilitate the high range uh, of the flute. Anyway, this is all very fascinating. But yeah, they're, they're totally different instruments, different fingerings. Uh, the Baroque flute has a very uh, kind of earthy, softer well, I want to say wooden tone. It's a wooden instrument, although they still make modern wooden flutes. Uh, I know that, you know, this obviously isn't just limited to flutes. I mean, you know, there are modern and older instruments in of, of all types. And one that comes to mind um, recently is I know that uh, recently our principal timpanist, um, Tim Jepson, just acquired a new set of timpani that are specifically used for certain periods of music. Am I right? Yeah, Tim has uh, some Baroque timpani mm-hmm. um, uh, that he actually had refurbished, and they're beautiful. And the sound is completely different. Um, it's not just a matter of the drum itself, but uh, the type of head that's used on the drum. And it creates a much more percussive sound, is how I would describe it, um, than the modern-day timpani, which is a little bit more uh, warmer, reverberant sound. Mm-hmm. So it actually helps a lot with the clarity in let's say Haydn or early Mozart. Um, And I always love when Tim brings those timpani to work and I get to sit out in the hall and listen to him really create some magic with them. Um, But yeah, so I mean, even the conductor guys, let's face it, I always feel a little awkward sometimes when when I am conducting a Baroque work or even early classical work because there weren't weren't conductors yet. So those works weren't meant to be Conducted. So I always have to be careful. I'm not ever in the way. I mean, I always have to feel like I'm not in the way as a conductor sometimes, <laughs> but especially with a, a Baroque piece or an early classical piece. So so another question that Dan kind of tagged on to the end of this, um, he asked, where is the intersection between what the composer has written on the page considering the era or the the historical context and the performer's interpretive or creative urge. So like, where does that intersection exist? I mean, that's a, a really fine line between those two things. And that's something I think as artists, we're always trying to balance perfectly. You have to respect what's on the page. We are not creating uh, the art as it happens. We're recreating someone else's art. And that's the great thing about uh, music Um, So first and foremost, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I think all of us really, we're trying to, as Mike said earlier, we're trying to hear the piece the way that composer would have initially heard it and and the concept that they originally had. But then you can't just play what's on the page because that's boring. You have to have your own interpretation of it. um, And there are times where you might want to do something that's crazy. And as long as you can justify it and do it in a convincing way, I think that's always fine. But you have to first and foremost honor the composer 
and what they had in mind, I think. But it is a fine line. Yeah, if uh, any of you listened to our episode with Caroline Shaw a few weeks mm-hmm. back, uh, she mm-hmm. she had a really interesting comment about this, which was just that you know she she enjoys it when the performer actually comes up with an idea about some of her music that that she didn't have, and and yeah. she encourages that. And not not every composer is necessarily uh, that way. Some are famously uh controlling even from the grave like uh Mahler Mahler's music is covered with so many detailed specific instructions it uh hardly leaves much room for the imagination and yet there is still a lot of room for imagination from the performer and I think too I mean to take that even further you know I mean obviously Caroline is a a young living composer so you know obviously she can say to us yeah I love that you know I love it when when you know, conductors and musicians kind of take that initiative and share their thoughts on it. You know, who knows, you know, they're Beethoven or Brahms or, you know, anyone could have actually been okay with that and would be okay with us, you know, taking some liberties or making a little adjustments here and there. But, you know, obviously we, we won't know that in Mahler's case though, you're right. He he was very clear with what he wanted. But Mahler became increasingly that way as his career went on. And it wasn't just because he was so picky as a composer. It was also because he was an amazing conductor. And he anticipated what an orchestra might do, you know, when the music suddenly got softer or something, he didn't want them to drag all of a sudden. Or if it got really lyrical, he wanted to keep a tempo. He'd write a very specific, you know, uh, marking of don't drag uh, or don't rush. Um, but you know, that actually brings to my mind an, uh, a story that probably many of our listeners know about Leonard Bernstein and Glenn Gould in 1962, I believe it was, there was a New York Phil performance of Brahms first piano concerto and Glenn Gould was one of the most respected pianists in the world for sure. And Leonard Bernstein, a great pianist himself and an amazing conductor, of course, had the two of them strongly disagreed with uh, Mr. Gould with, I should say, Bernstein disagreed with Gould's interpretation of mm-hmm. the Brahms first piano sonata, a very standard piece, mostly because his tempos were so incredibly slow. And I, from my understanding, Glenn Gould notified Bernstein about a week before the rehearsals, hey, I have this new revelation <laughs> about the Brahms first piano concerto, and Bernstein has a, had a lot of respect for Gould, so he convinced the musicians to go along with it. But then when it got to the performance, Bernstein felt so compelled to tell the audience beforehand, this is not my interpretation of the Brahms first piano concerto, to paraphrase. He basically said, I have a lot of respect for Mr. Gould. Um, This is his idea. But he actually said, that's the great thing about music, is that someone of Mr. Gould's ability level can take something that's even so standard that we've heard so many times and completely change our view on it. And actually, many pianists started to take certain parts of that piece slower after that weekend of performances, which I think is pretty cool. That is cool. So uh, Jim asks us, when a musician auditions and is hired to play in the symphony, do they ever have to re-audition to keep their seat in the symphony? Or can they play in the orchestra for as long as they want? Can I add something to that, yeah. too, before before we answer it? Because I think sure. um, a question that I always get that wasn't submitted, but we get all the time, is um, whether or not this is 
in the Kansas City Symphony if this is our, our musician's full-time job. Mm. So I think that kind of plays into it. And yes, this is our these are our musicians and our staff. It's full-time jobs for everybody. So and we can talk about the audition process, which we've we've talked about a little bit, but I think just to clarify that going into this question is a good idea. Mm. Sure. Well as a as a uh, musician in the Kansas City Symphony and the only, well, I should say, instrumental musician in the Kansas City Symphony, because I'll, I'll be I'll be generous. I'll consider Jason a musician. I was going to say, doctors are musicians too. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll be nice. I'll include you. Okay, um, thank you. As the <laughs> as the only uh, instrumental musician uh, on our uh, team here, I will say that uh, yes, once. Once uh, a musician is hired, they do not have to re-audition uh, at any point with a with a little bit of a caveat to that, which is just that uh, there would be no re-audition. But uh, after after winning a position in the orchestra, the first year and a half or so is a probationary period uh, where where the new player's performance is evaluated and they have an opportunity to get feedback in a very... Um, uh, in a very organized fashion, you know, from the conductor and from uh, their colleagues, and uh, assuming they're wonderful, which they almost always are, uh, everyone is happy, then we grant them tenure, and then at that point, they are uh, totally permanent members of the symphony, and and it's important for a variety of reasons. No one should uh, have to come to work every day wondering if you know, if they're not up to snuff uh, at one rehearsal or something, they're going to get fired. Um, and also, really more importantly, everyone should feel that they have the freedom to experiment and develop and mm. and take risk, I think. And it's one of the challenges, actually, of not being a tenured player, is it's, it's often hard to... Um, it's hard to allow yourself to to experiment and to develop in the way that the rest of us do always, because you're a little bit concerned about doing something that somebody doesn't like, and then they won't want to give you tenure. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, it's actually really um, important to keep us as creative and as um, innovative as possible on stage. I think those are really good points, Mike. And I, I didn't even think about some of those things that you just brought up. And I also think that, you know, what I, what I always find truly wonderful is that, you know, being a professional musician is such an incredibly challenging uh, career every day mm -hmm. for, for years and years and years, because as musicians, we're always striving to give the absolute best performance of every piece that we perform, uh, of every piece we play. Perform we, we strive to perform the pieces in our performance. Yes, that is true. <laughs> but, but seriously, you know, in order to have a really uh, great music career, you are showing up every single time really well prepared, giving 110%. And um, that's what leads to the magic on stage is that, yes, there is that job security once you have tenure, but everyone comes um, fully ready to give their very all every single day, no matter how many years they've been playing in the orchestra, which I always admire and respect quite a bit. And I think that's especially evident in the Kansas City Symphony. You know, we talked a lot about this um, in episode nine with our personnel manager, Justin White. Um, we talked a lot about the audition process, but, um, you know, one of obviously when you're able to earn a tenured position in an orchestra, that is a highly coveted um, 
thing. I mean, you know, you you get a job like that and you you don't leave until you leave for another uh, tenured position in another orchestra. I mean, that's just kind of how it works. Um, but they're also, I mean, they're also highly competitive, as we talked about in that episode, where, you know, there might be a hundred players that show up for one position, um, you know, so not only are, are they showing up, um, I, I think a lot of that is, is even the tenure process is this reward for all the preparation that even led up to you getting that job too, Indeed. I think. Indeed. Yeah, that's definitely true. And actually that really uh, leads us well to a question we got from Valerie. Uh, she asked uh, exactly that. How do you prepare for potentially winning an orchestral audition uh, when competing with so many other great players? And does one's resume and university training matter or help to uh, to achieve that goal? Or do you uh, have advice, tips, what not to do? And again, we covered some of this in uh, the wonderful episode we did with Justin White, and I famously had a moment where I uh, had traumatic flashbacks from my <laughs> auditioning experience. So if you want to see me come a little unhinged, you know, definitely check that out. I'll try to, I'll try to hold my emotions in check today, but um, yeah, well there, there, there are several questions here. So, so maybe let's work backwards through this a little bit um, since actually we didn't talk about the aspect of, resume and university mm -hmm. training, uh, as specifically maybe in that episode with Justin. So, um, as far as winning the audition, it's, it's, uh, a totally blind process. The people, the people listening don't know who you are, don't know, uh, where you came from, where you went to school, any of that. And we talk about that in detail. The thing we didn't maybe talk about as much is that people submit their resumes in order to get, uh, the opportunity to audition because unfortunately there are often more applicants than we can possibly hear uh, in the allotted time. And so we do have to uh, unfortunately not invite some people. Although I think the Kansas city symphony in particular has a really outstanding policy in this regard, which is that even if we recommend, and I believe the language we use essentially recommends that somebody not come to an audition based on their resume, uh, and we don't make a time for them. If you show up at the door and say, hi, I'm here with my trombone. I want to audition for this piccolo job. <laughs> we, we, we have to listen. We, we have to yeah. listen and we will. Yeah. And we happily will too. I mean, I think is, you know, I, like obviously if you're going to the effort of doing that, of course we're going to listen, but you know, this, this concept of resumes is, is especially interesting to me because just last week, my sister, who is not a musician is um, considering going back to graduate school. And she, she asked me um, if I thought that the school she attended um, would, how big of a role the school she attended would play in, in the hiring process. Um, and so, you know, there are kind of two things that you have to consider. One is, obviously, the number one thing is, what are you going to learn at whatever institution you go to? And that's true of any profession. Um, you know, what are you going to get out of the experience? But then also what that um, institution looks like on paper. And, um, you know, I think it's less important uh, in the music world. I, personally, I think that because once you're in the door and you're auditioning, it doesn't, it does not play a factor at all. Once you're playing, it has nothing to do with 
um, who you are, what kind of flute you play, where, you know, where you went to school, uh, you know, how many orchestras you've performed with in the past, none of that matters. But in other professions, I think, you know, the diploma actually makes a big difference. Uh, But Mike, when you were saying that, I hadn't actually thought about it. Like, so in the review process of the, um, of the resumes, like, I'm sure school actually does play somewhat of a role, right? Yeah, it it definitely does. So a a typical resume that um, someone will send, or I should be more specific, a typical resume someone should send. Yeah. Because <laughs> sometimes we see some kind of funny ones. They, I, we, <laughs> I won't lie. They're, they're, well, there may or may not be a hidden file somewhere in the symphony office of resumes that should be used as examples of what not to submit. Mm. I'll and just say that may or may not be true. As you know, as students, we all learn from our teachers or from somebody, hopefully, what a professional resume for a musician should look like. But it basically includes a few uh, a few important things. It includes number one, your professional orchestral experience. Since you're applying to play in a professional orchestra, we want to know if you have. Uh, experience doing that in any capacity. And even if you haven't had a full-time job yet uh, at, at the point in your career where you're a serious candidate, you know, for the Kansas city symphony, you've usually had some subbing work with a professional orchestra. Maybe you've had an interim position with a professional orchestra. Maybe you've had a full-time position with a smaller regional orchestra, something like that. Or maybe you've had a full-time position with another you know, orchestra somewhere else and you just want to move or who knows. So there's that. Um, then there's, uh, festivals. We want to know what festivals you've played at because, uh, especially the, the most well-known ones, they're, um, not only competitive to get into, uh, but they're also a really important, um, learning and maturing experience for a young musician. So that would be like Tanglewood or Aspen music festival or, um, in Santa Barbara, what's wrong with me? Music Academy of the West <laughs> or uh, Round National Top, Repertory National Repertory Orchestra. Yeah, all all of these would be great examples. Um, and then and then we want to see schooling too. And you know the thing is when we're looking at these resumes and we do we do review these as a committee, by the way. So it's not just one person looking at them. You get a I- real intuition for. You know, if somebody has sort of the aggregate experience, they may not have all of the things, but they have some of the things. I think, too, when we talked with Justin in that that last episode, we talked about the fact that, you know, you might have a, you might have attended, you know, a huge name school and you might have all of this experience, but maybe the players in our orchestra have a certain style or a certain type, you know, play, play in a certain way with a certain type of sound or whatever. So, you know, a lot of that kind of, what's on the page of your resume might be stunning. It also just might not fit within what a particular orchestra is looking for. But before, um, and and all of your stuff, Mike, excellent. You want to know where you've played and what festivals you've played for and where you've been to school. But when I say, um, like, you also need to make sure that you include basic things. And I'm saying this for a reason, because we've seen resumes with these things missing. You also want to make sure that you include your name. This is an excellent, <laughs> excellent tip. Make sure that um, uh, you include either a phone number or an email address so that you can receive communication. 
By the way, the committee does not see those things, no, but the, the committee personnel does manager not. does. Correct. The somebody c- needs to know your name. Yeah, somebody does. And then somebody <laughs> also needs to know what instrument you play and what position you are applying for. So that does also um, has a tendency to somehow not appear on a resume uh, more often than you might think. Well, I mean, obviously all these things are important. <laughs> Name, contact info, music festivals, where you went to school. I think another thing is who you studied with, What, mm-hmm. who are your primary teachers? Because, you know, just I'm, I'm thinking as you guys are talking about football, I'm a huge NFL fan. And at the beginning of the game, when all the players do their introductions and they say, Jason Sieber, the Ohio State University. Barf. Well, I didn't go to Ohio State, but I didn't go to Ohio State, but that's a typical uh, answer for where you went to school if you're a, a football player that's in the NFL because they yes. have a great football program. But you also hear people say, um, Stephanie Brimhall, and I went to the Mike Gordon School of Piccolo Playing and uh, Barbecuing. That's right. For football. Yeah. And they're still the best offensive linemen in the NFL. That's you know, right. so you can go to a small school. You can, but it's all about your own talent and your own experiences combined. Obviously, that are going to allow you to be successful. And then when you're actually on stage, as we said at the very beginning of, the, of this discussion, it's all about how you play, that's and right. that's all that really matters. You can go anywhere. You can have been anything, but it's all about how you play in that moment. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for uh, recognizing my small but overlooked uh, <laughs> offensive line program. <laughs> Love it. But um, to, to answer, you know, another part of that question more directly, uh, you know, I find uh, in just among my colleagues, among, you know, resumes when I'm reviewing something, um, there are a whole lot of people uh, who go very far in this uh, career you know, having started their schooling at, you know, West Acme State University at wherever, you know, that <laughs> a program that nobody's ever heard of, um, where maybe they're just, a, you know, a really talented person. There happens to be a wonderful teacher there, this person, mm-hmm. who, you know, whatever. Um, there's, of course, you know, untold numbers of people that uh, came through Juilliard and Curtis since they were. 12 and you know studied with roberto diaz and you know whoever um uh but i would say you know in general regardless of where you started you know everyone at some point in their career comes through a few universities uh a few festivals a few orchestras in common and that's that's kind of what we look at and also you know are they are they active? Uh, you know, we'll get resumes sometimes that say, you know, graduated uh, in Vuvuzela performance from the <laughs> Curtis Institute in 1974, and then nothing for the mm-hmm. next, you know, 30, 40 years. And so they could be an incredibly wonderful player, and there might be a whole variety of reasons they haven't done anything for 30 or 40 years, but that's very unusual. Mm-hmm. Um uh, similarly, we might get a resume that says, you know, I graduated last week or I haven't even graduated. I'm a sophomore at Rhode Island College of Sailing. <laughs> we have some great school. Well, I mean, today. I'm, I'm making things up, of course, but we get things that look like that. And you're like, yeah. OK, they just graduated from Rhode Island College of Sailing and they have a degree. And well, that's 
that's kind of odd. I wonder if they really have the experience. So anyway, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that's how we look at it. Yeah. So this next question, um, I'm going to apologize in advance because when we were collecting these questions, I we got all of them together, and I just didn't write down who sent it. Now I can't find it, but it's a great question, um, and it's very important. And uh, Mike and Jason, you might you might have a little debate about this, but the question is, how can you pay attention to the music and the conductor at the same time? Oh, let me take this one. Uh, <laughs> you should only pay attention to the conductor, so that should never be an issue. <laughs> Just look at the conductor. They will help you. They have the music sometimes printed on their forehead to help you. Uh, no, obviously. <laughs> but Stephanie, I'm a little uh, also wondering about the validity of what you just said about you couldn't find the name. Are you sure you didn't submit this question <laughs> to try to spark a debate between me and Mike? No, because what I would have said would be, why would you pay attention to the conductor <laughs> when the music is right in front of you? <laughs> Well, oh, I just man. want to compliment this person for recognizing that the music and the conductor are not necessarily the same thing. Sure. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. Just keep it going. Keep them coming. No, I mean, obviously, uh, the way our stands are set up, there's a direct line of vision, of course. And with professional musicians, they don't have to look at the conductor most of the time. Um, but you can, of course, always see the conductor out of your peripheral vision with the way the music is naturally set up. So... And it is amazing how strong our peripheral vision is. We're sort of like hawks, I would say. We're probably, we probably have better peripheral vision than any other career path as an orchestral musician. Wouldn't you say? Interesting. I don't know. Mike, in all honesty, how do you pay attention to the music and the conductor at the same time? In all well, yes. honesty. Uh, jo- joking aside, just for one brief moment, and then I'll, <laughs> I'll go back to unashamedly... Uh, bashing you at every opportunity. Um, (laughs) You know, the the language of conducting is really designed in such a way, and I don't know that it's it developed this way exactly intentionally uh, with this in mind, but it certainly works very much as a language that you can read peripherally without staring. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... So it's one of the things you learn uh, as as uh, you get more experience in orchestra, you know, always to arrange yourself so that the conductor is constantly in your peripheral vision uh, above your stand, and also to know your music well enough that you can concentrate on both things at the same time. You know, and actually, I'm going to jump to a, another question, and maybe we can talk about both of these together, but... Um, uh, Holly had asked us about some of the non-performing jobs in the symphony and um, mm-hmm. uh, what kind of, it, well, we can get into more depth about her question, but the, the question about what are some non-performing jobs, um, the stage manager and the production um manager in, in the Kansas City Symphony play a huge role in the musicians being able to see their music and see the conductor at the same time. I mean, there is a... Mm-hmm a very precise and accurate stage plot that is designed for every single performance that we do. And it includes the exact number of people with the, um, the exact dimensions and the, the distances that needs to happen that need to be between the chairs for each specific instrument to be able to play. Um, you know, it's not just set up for the instruments, but like to our musicians, um, preferences and specifications. And so, you know, the, the production manager actually creates that and, and does that. And then the stage managers read that plot and they make sure that the chairs 
um, and stands get set up in a way that the, you know, the musicians aren't having to make these huge adjustments when they sit down. They, they're able to set the stand, sit in the chair, and see everything that they're supposed to to see. That's a really good point, Stephanie. Um, you know, unless you've actually sat on stage, it's probably hard to imagine uh, what a puzzle of geometry it is mm -hmm. actually for every single musician to have a, a clear line of sight to the conductor, and not only to the conductor, but to the conductor's hands and the conductor's eyes. Mm -hmm. You don't really have to see the rest of them. Yeah. But the hands and the eyes, uh, and, and usually it's not Usually it's pretty easy on Heltzberg uh, Hall stage because we have the risers, but occasionally we do a program where the risers are down and we're all flat uh, and and it's a little bit harder to arrange ourselves. And honestly, it's so important if if I or you know any of the people around me can't see, rehearsal won't start. I mean, we won't we just we won't do anything unless we can see because we have to. And the other thing is, I mean, Mike, you mentioned earlier that you know you know your music pretty well, so you can check in with the conductor quite a bit. But also, um, as I mentioned, orchestras don't need conductors most of the time if the tempo's not changing all over the place and it's something that they've played a lot and they're very familiar with. But, I mean, all musicians look up, even if it's just subtly, mm -hmm. at tempo changes, at ends of, uh, you know, a piece or movement or any a cutoff, any fermata, anything that requires looking at a conductor, obviously you're going to look up at those places. Um but, you know, you don't need to look up most of the time, and that peripheral vision really does help. And, you know, I, I've, as I've learned more and more about conducting, especially with great orchestras like the Kansas City Symphony, what I've learned is that less is more all the time. So if I'm up there and I'm not really doing anything special and I'm just kind of beating and beating time and nothing's really happening, and this is something you learn through conducting training, no one's going to look at you because they especially don't need you and you're not giving them any helpful information at all because they don't need you to stay together, that's for darn sure. But if you do something subtly, or you do something different compared to how you've rehearsed it when you're in the, in the heat of the moment of a performance, that's when everyone kind of like looks up and goes, oh, mm -hmm. or oh, <laughs> you know, one of those two reactions. But, but it's, it's those moments of, of transition or those moments uh, where you're doing something subtle and special where all of a sudden everyone kind of perks up for a moment. It's it's actually one of the really interesting parts of working with a conductor uh, whom you know really well and have played with a lot versus mm -hmm. one that you haven't. Because, you know, when I'm when I'm playing with Jason or when I'm playing with Michael, you know, I, I not only do I uh, you know, recognize their gestures because every every conductor is a little different. Um, I recognize their gestures well. I understand um, you know, their language well, but I also anticipate well i think jason mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> i anticipate um anticipate. you know those moments when yeah. when they're likely to do something different maybe each concert and yeah. you know that's when i really need to be sure i'm attentive to to what they're doing in case they do something differently um and when it's a person i don't know as well then i really have to pay attention because i don't mm -hmm. then i don't always know for sure when or where they're going to do something differently. And some conductors are just brilliant, but they pretty much do the same thing every time. And you can learn to trust that. And, <laughs> and, you know, I'm never not paying attention, but I don't have to stare. And then there are other conductors, uh, you know, who will like wiggle their pinky finger slightly differently mm. during one of your solos each time and expect you to do something 
uh, in reaction to it, in which case <laughs> you have to stare at them. It's <laughs> just mm-hmm. it's just true. <laughs> Well, I, I think we brought up a lot of really cool things about that, and uh, hopefully that answers your question. Whoever you are, mysterious person out there. I promise um, it wasn't me. I promise. Okay, okay, <laughs> I believe you. Um, and I don't want to. I don't want to spend too much time, but just to to get back to Holly's, you know, talking about um, the non-performing jobs. I don't know. Maybe we can. We should probably designate a whole lot more time to to that conversation than, than what we have here. But I will point um, you all to um, a couple episodes that we've done, um, certainly the one that we did with Justin um, and talking about auditions, and also one that just came out a couple weeks ago with our principal librarian, Elena Lentz-Talley, um, where we learn a lot about what she has, uh, the responsibilities that she has and the experience um, that, that goes along with being a librarian. And um, certainly, you know, continue listening because we have a, a, a lot of great chats and interviews planned with all sorts of people who who work at the symphony. And uh, we hope to answer those questions more. Um, but you got to keep listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are, there are a lot of incredible people that uh, that you unfortunately don't get to see on stage, but uh, without whom, you know, we we absolutely cannot do anything. It's not even just the stagehands and the librarian. We have, you know, our production manager, our assistant production manager, our personnel managers. We have, <laughs> we have Stephanie, our education manager. We have, um, you know, a general manager. We have an executive director. We, you know, a marketing department and a yeah, fundraising I mean, you know, department. We've got social media and, uh, yeah. you know, grants writers and accountants. And I mean, there's just, there's yeah. so many different types of of jobs allowing us to do what we do every day indeed it 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 takes an army to to have a great orchestra and we will definitely as you mentioned stephanie feature more and more of our people behind the scenes in season two and and get to know about them and their jobs uh jennifer asked the question i would love to learn about the orchestra rehearsal process i'm curious how professional musicians at an extremely high level rehearse together play through straight a couple times. Uh, she's especially interested in the process of rehearsing with guest soloists and composers. If you're uh, able to have the composer there for a, a brand new work, um, lots of stuff to to answer in that. I mean, obviously every rehearsal is different depending on what it is we're rehearsing. Is it a classical week where we're going to have four rehearsals um, for a program, or is it a pops program where many times we only have one? That alone dictates what kind of a rehearsal it is with pop stuff, uh, various other programs. A lot of times it really is only running through the music once, Mm -hmm. let alone several times. Um, You try to be efficient no matter how you're rehearsing, uh, no matter what type of program you're rehearsing, though. You try to say as little as possible, play as much, and get the music to the highest level it can be, sometimes in a very short amount of time. You know what I love about Jason's um, rehearsal prep is that, you know, uh, certainly for the rehearsals that we do where we get one rehearsal and oftentimes it, you know, it's just an hour and a half. And that's basically, as you said, enough, enough time to run through stuff and maybe tweak some things as you need to. But Mm -hmm. Jason has um, this system where he will write down, um, you know, if rehearsal starts at 10 a.m., He'll write down at 10.07, we're moving to the next piece. And then at 10.28, yeah. we have to move to the next piece. So he's really right. got it 
really planned out in in a way that I would guess most conductors don't do based on some yeah. things, you know, that I've observed over my time. And I do that. Uh, thank you, Stephanie. I'm glad that you pointed that out because I do that for myself more mm-hmm. than anything. And it's not an exact thing. It's not like, okay, well, we still have to fix this, but it's 1027. So we're moving on to Rachmaninoff. It's not like that. <laughs> right. But it is, it does definitely help keep me kind of pacing the rehearsal the right way to make sure that we get through everything. Because the worst problem you can have is to only have 10, 15 minutes left at the end of rehearsal and you still have an eight minute difficult piece that you haven't even started rehearsing yet. Right. You don't want to get yourself in a situation like that because time is very precious. Yeah, and another thing that I really love, um, when we are in Hellsberg Hall and we're rehearsing for our classical series, for example, we often invite student groups, so band and orchestra students, um, to come in and watch the rehearsal process. And then at the break, we, we take questions from these students. And inevitably, at every rehearsal, we always get asked about the rehearsal process. You know, how long have you been preparing? Um, you know, we might have a guest conductor or a guest soloist. And, and the question always comes up, okay, well, how long have you guys actually been working on this music? And without fail, um, I mean, you guys remember what it was like being in high school and middle school orchestra, you rehearse the same concert for three months, right? Right. You know, right. the same four pieces, but it blows their minds to learn that we it we might be meeting on a Friday morning and we didn't sit down together until Wednesday. Um, yeah. And that's generous. I mean, that's like a long week of rehearsal. Um, and, and I always love seeing the look in their faces, like, wait a minute, you sound like that. And you've only been together, what, three times this week? That's crazy. Right. And the other thing is, you know, with a, a concerto soloist, usually that doesn't come into play until the third out of the four rehearsals. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll usually devote an entire rehearsal, especially if it's a contemporary solo, uh, contemporary concerto or something difficult that's not standard. So, you, you know, when did you start rehearsing? Well, actually, this piece, we just started rehearsing yesterday afternoon, right. and we've only been through it once with the soloist. So. Yeah, uh, all, all of these things are are completely true, but I want to make sure Jason is paying attention right now because I'm I'm going to say I'm going to say something not snarky about Ooh. about conduct about conductors and specifically Ooh. you. You have my full undivided attention. There we are. Okay, good. I'm glad you're paying attention. I don't want this to get missed. What what Stephanie was saying about your you know your management of time, it's really it goes beyond even something you do for your own uh, personal organization and getting through rehearsal, it gives it gives the musicians a lot of confidence and comfort because it's you know the rehearsal time is time for it looks like you know what ha- what's happening is you're telling us what we need to know to do what we need to do, but we're also figuring things out for ourselves, you know, communicating right. with each other, and we need that time uh, and that that uh, opportunity for a little bit of repetition to to get things sorted out. So uh, the worst feeling as a musician is, you Mm. know, oh God, here we are in this concert. And did we even play this earlier? I don't remember. I guess we must have. I think we did it once in the last five minutes and I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. You know, that's really, really unnerving. And also I would say um, Jason, of course, conducts, uh, you know, mainly with us concerts where we have more, uh, individual pieces by far mm-hmm. than yeah. we'd ever have on a subscription series. And he does them uh, with fewer rehearsals than we'd ever have for a subscription series. So, 
so keeping that organized and carving out enough time for each thing uh, is really vital. And then, of course, in a subscription series, it's a little bit of a luxury situation, actually, even though it doesn't sound like a lot of time. You know, starting out the week just by, you know, we'll play through the first movement of the Beethoven Symphony for the week and we'll say, oh, well, that was pretty good. That was lovely. Oh, we'll read another movement. Maybe we'll play the whole symphony and then we'll go back and we'll meander around the first movement for 20 or 30 minutes before break. And then we'll take a break and then we'll think about the slow movement and just, you know, kind of, it's great. I mean, it's fun. Uh, And there's a little less of that pressure. But anyway, yeah, the, the management of time is so essential in that process. And you do that very well. I appreciate that. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Mike. And I, and I also, I also really appreciate the fact that you brought up that it's so important for the musicians too, to feel, I mean, part of my job on the podium is to make everyone as comfortable and successful as possible when we get to the concert. And so that's a really valid point about the musicians feeling calm and comfortable going into the performance as well. I'm glad you brought that up. I also like that Mike had to really call your attention to make sure you were paying attention. <laughs> I always <laughs> pay attention to no, Mike. No, I know, but he wanted but you to really hear it. I, I wanted yeah. the credit documented for yes, posterity. You, you <laughs> I, get, I'm, I forever, I owe you one. The, I owe you one. I, you I will know, give you a big compliment on the I think I'm still in the hole awesome. by a few, but... <laughs> The funniest thing, though, was as soon as you said that, I think Jason's dog walked in. He did. Puccini walked in, so he wanted to hear it, too, because he's only heard conductor jokes. He hasn't heard many conductor compliments in his dog life, so he definitely had to be a part of that as well. There you go. All right. Well, Cal asks us a, a great question, I think. If Beethoven joined Rachmaninoff at the bar late on a Saturday night, what would they say to one another? And I, if if I may, I think Rachmaninoff would say, thank you. And Beethoven would say, you're welcome. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that I, if the conversation went a little further than that, because I think it could end right there. I think you're right. Um, I think that, I mean, you're talking about two of the most brilliant pianists, Mm -hmm. not just composers, but two of the most brilliant pianists ever. So I think Beethoven would be fascinated with piano technique and how it evolved in those next hundred years. And I would hope that this conversation takes place at one of those like dueling piano bars, and then they could each (laughs) sit down and play each other's pieces. I would love to see Beethoven play rock two, and I'd love to see Rachmaninoff's, I'm sure Rachmaninoff did play all the Beethoven piano concerti during his lifetime, but <laughs> it would be cool to see them kind of, rather than have a, a, a talking conversation, have a piano conversation and interpret each other's works. I think that'd be kind of cool. I love that. But all I could picture now is them like sitting across two pianos, you know, staring each other down, playing like the <laughs> piano man or something. Like that's, <laughs> that's all I can picture. Nice. Mike, what do you think? Uh, You know, honestly, I have exactly the same thought you do, Jason. And for some reason, as you're talking about this, the image uh, comes to mind for me of that movie from many years ago called Shine with Jeffrey Rush. And and a theme through the whole movie is that Rachmaninoff 3 is like this landmark hardest piece ever, which, you know, it is a hard piece, of course. I don't know if most pianists would agree it's the hardest one, but that's sort of the, the story. And there's scenes where, you know, he's breaking strings on the piano playing Rachmaninoff 3. And of course, Beethoven is, you know, famous for putting his piano on the floor so he can feel the vibrations. And I can mm-hmm. just see, you know, Rachmaninoff banging out Rachmaninoff three mm-hmm. and strings breaking and, and Beethoven with the piano on the floor and then, 
you know, arguing about who can play louder on the piano or something. <laughs> nice, nice. I also think Beethoven would say, uh, dude, no fair. Your hands are like twice the size of mine. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. It'd be a good conversation one way or the other. Uh, Michael asks, and this is our final question of the day. And since we always talk about, we always, we always ask our guests, what's your drink of choice? Michael has kind of a, a cool question here. What do you think would be the drink of choice for some famous composers at, at our bar that Beethoven walks into? Mm. Let's just take a few composers here. How about uh, Mozart? What do you think Mozart would drink oh, man. at a bar? Well, Stephanie? Okay, so see, that that just makes me think Mozart, you know, the child prodigy and, you know, composing when he was four or five years old. I know he lived at least a bit longer than that, but I'm going to say that Mozart would probably just drink a glass of milk. <laughs> I think that's be the, the safe most, answer. It'd be the most perfect glass of yeah. milk ever though. <laughs> just like his composition to be like the exact perfect temperature. Yes. Yeah. 2% probably is my guess. <laughs> yes. Um, how about Tchaikovsky? Hmm. Chai- you know, Tchaikovsky was a pretty dark and depressed man a lot of times and had uh, dealt with a lot of, difficulties in his life, I'm going to guess a dark and stormy because that's the way his Mm. life was. And that's the way his music often is. So Tchaikovsky would be a rum drinker, dark and stormy. Deep. How about, um, John Cage? Ooh, that'd be a fun one to John Cage. Yeah. I think, uh, I think when he goes to a bar, he only orders one thing and that would be an empty glass of scotch. <laughs> nice. And it would be like the biggest glass ever. It'd be like one of those like cowboy boots that they fill the beer with, but it would have nothing in it. Yeah. Nice. Love it. Oh man. Well, we've had so much fun trying, I hope, to answer your questions today. And and thanks to everyone who submitted um, questions. If we didn't get to your question today, we are going to definitely answer it in a future episode. And if listening today or throughout the season has sparked some questions in your own mind, please send them our way. You can go to kcsymphony.org slash podcasts. And in the Beethoven Walks Into a Bar section, you can uh, click right in there and um, Submit a submit your question directly to us. We'd love to hear from you. And speaking of future episodes, uh, I have to say that making this podcast uh, with the three of you, and of course with our silent producer Tim, uh, mm-hmm. has been such a joy. And uh, we look forward to doing this so much every week, uh, more than more than you could possibly imagine. So mm-hmm. we are going to take just a short summer break and try to beat the heat as best we can but we will (laughs) return with all new episodes of beethoven walks into a bar in late august that's right it's gonna be season two get ready it's gonna be exciting Uh, in the meantime please subscribe if you haven't already done so on apple podcasts or spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell everyone you know about beethoven walks into bar tell your friends your relatives acquaintances, your neighbors, pets, enemies, <laughs> literally everyone. Anyone else I might have left out, have them listen as well. Make sure you also follow the KC Symphony on all of our social media and continue to check out our website, which is kcsymphony.org for great online content from our musicians. Stay safe, stay healthy, wash your hands, wear a mask, distance yourself from others in public like Beethoven always did. <laughs> And we'll see you in a few weeks on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar.